Lord, we intentionally humble ourselves in your presence. It's the best thing we can do. We love to see you high and lifted up. Lord, we offer ourselves to you. I ask you to give ears to hear the things you mean for each of us to hear from your word this morning. No more, Lord, and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a Pulitzer Prize-winning image from 1973 as I was thinking about uh, this message and you always want to bring in some illustration that's helpful to get you to connect. If you've seen the image, you probably would remember it. Uh, but the setting was Travis Air Force Base in California. It was the tarmac there. And the event was a lot of American POWs from Hanoi, from North Vietnam, had just been returned home. And one of those POWs was Airman Colonel Bob Sturm. He had been a prisoner of war in what they called the Hanoi Hilton for almost six years. And Sturm was there addressing the crowd that's welcoming him home. He hasn't seen his family yet. And the photographer was Slava Vader. So he's watching, he's looking for opportunities to take pictures. And as he does, he sees motion from the crowd. So he grabs his camera, raises it. And what he caught was Bob Sturm's family running across the tarmac to greet him. They haven't seen him in six years. And the, how many people here remember this picture? I, it was the cover of some magazine. I remember it from back in the day, probably when it was taken. But the photo catches Sturm's 15-year-old daughter, Lori, mid-stride. Her feet are off the ground. Her arms are wide open and her face is split, you know, ear to ear with this grin. She's getting ready to hug her dad after six years away. The photo was dubbed Burst of Joy for that moment. So she's in front. She's got three siblings and her mom are, are coming in from behind. There was no other person there that day that could have elicited that kind of response from Lori Sturm. You know, this unique relationship she had with her dad. And this reunion is what elicited that joy that the photographer was lucky enough to capture on film. So nothing else and no one else could have replaced Bob Sturm for his daughter that day. That unique relationship is what that photo caught. This is to introduce the sixth message in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. And today we're going to be looking at the first two of the Ten Commandments, the words that deal specifically with Israel's very, very personal and very unique relationship with the Lord. Last week we talked about the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, and we said because they are the introduction to the covenant, we don't live under the Ten Commandments today. You can't in the sense that they're part of a larger covenant. But we also noted that the Ten Words communicated things that were eternally true, that were always true. That includes the two commandments we'll be looking at today. So in that sense, we aspire to live. Good to see you guys here. Welcome back. We aspire to live by these because they've always been true. The things that we're talking about this morning have always been applicable. I would note too a couple things. I did a study in 2012, 12 lessons on the 10 words. There's an introduction, there's a summary, and then there's one lesson on each of the 10 words. You can see those online under the sermons. Uh, 10 words is the title of that study. Also, depending on your tradition or what Bible, what kind of Bible you read, you may be aware that if you're a, from the Roman Catholic or Lutheran background, 
versus the Protestant, more, more clearly Protestant background, the ten words get div divvied up just a little bit differently. So for the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, the first two commands we'll look at today are treated as one. And the last two on coveting are treated as two. For Protestants, generally, the first two words are two separate words. That's the way we'll treat it this morning. And the last one, the one on coveting, is treated as a singular one. The words break down, and we won't cover these week by week. We'll cover these uh, two today. We'll cover one, one, and six. That's the way we'll go through these. But they break down this way. Living right with God is the first three of those ten words. Living in God's rest is the fourth. That one's a bit unique, and we'll talk about that. And then the last five through ten are living right with others. So we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 5. If you've missed any of the previous message, all of this, of course, takes place near the end of Moses' life. Israel's poised to go into the land of promise, but he's recounting to them. He's reminding them what's been going on for the last 40 years. So he's prepping them to be able to go into the land of promise and live under God's blessing through covenant faithfulness. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open there to Deuteronomy 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read from the ESV. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord... That's all capitals in our Bibles. That's God's proper name. King James might say Jehovah there. You could say Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew letters that we transliterate as Lord. But His proper name, the Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. Not with generations ago, but with the generation that's sitting there now and getting ready to go into the land of promise. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, this is God speaking, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 8, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And guys, before I forget, there are elements in this, these, this section of text I'm not going to cover today. You can hear those on the series from before, but elements of that I won't address today. So after God delivers Israel from Egypt by demonstrating His power over their gods, He tells Israel that He alone is God and they must cling to Him and follow Him only. And you caught there in verse 9, this language where God says, I am a jealous God. And usually when we use the term jealous or jealousy in our culture, in our time, it's seen as a negative that's absolutely backwards biblically. So the thought here is that God uniquely possesses and protects the relationships that are specific to Him. So if we compare this as God does in the Old Testament to a husband and wife relationship, 
the husband and the wife are meant to be jealous for each other. That's a good thing. That's not a negative thing because they're making sure they're putting a fence around their special, unique relationship. So God doesn't apologize for being jealous. He says, I am jealous. I'm very careful about those unique relationships that are mine. And remember, with Israel, he defines his relationship different ways at different times. He says, Israel's my son. He also compares Israel to his wife. But at least in this setting, you're my covenant people. And you're the only people in all the world that I have this unique covenant with. So a very special relationship between God and Israel. He also says, this is a little bit like God has redeemed them. It's the language of redemption. You were like a slave down in Egypt and I bought you back. Think of Hosea. You were lost there. You couldn't redeem yourself. I came in and redeemed you. You're specifically mine. I've bought you. Now when Moses and when God talk about an idol in these days, we're talking about an image, stuff, that people have formed and shaped to represent God. Sometimes whatever they formed, so it could have been stone, could have been metal, was oftentimes wood, whatever they formed was either thought to be in and of itself a God, or it stood in, it was a stand-in, it was a representation of a God. But in either case, God is saying, don't worship me by creating something that your hand, your art, your skill can devise as if that's me. Deuteronomy 4, in fact, well, look back here at 5 for just a second where it says, uh, verse 4, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. That's a euphemism because chapter 4 will tell us something different. God said of Moses, he said, I speak to Moses face to face, but, God, but Moses says to God, God, show me yourself. And God says, well, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back. So the face to face language is personal, it's intimate, but it's not as if anyone had actually seen God face to face at this time. They had not. And in fact, in chapter 4, when Moses was reminding them of that meeting at Sinai, he said, hey guys, remember, remember many people in this group he's addressing would have been alive at that time. If they were 19 or younger, they would have survived the 40 years. They would have remembered this event. He said, remember, there was smoke, there was fire, there was lightning, there was the ground shaking, and there was a trumpet. But what there was not, you saw no image. You didn't see any image of God to reproduce. And he said, that's meant to carry forward. God didn't show you anything that you could remember him by. You knew that there was this powerful presence there, but there was nothing that you could have looked at and then imitated in something you had made to say, that's God, or I'm worshiping God through that image. God's very clear on this, that idolatry is always an insult. Whether we say we're, we're creating another God, breaking the first commandment, or just in our minds, not even making anything, or if we say, I'm making something, and through that thing I made, I'm worshiping the true God, the intent there misses the mark. God says, you cannot, you must not try to worship me through something you've made. I'm absolutely unique, holy. Remember when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, part of that thought is, God is separate, He's unique, He's above us. You know, in Romans 1, when it says, we know there's a creator. There's also something else we know. He's distinct from his creation. So you can't make a representation that's adequate to worship God. God can't be captured in an image. It's always a misrepresentation. Think of the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, 
what does God do? He takes dust from the earth, he molds it together, and then he breathes into it, and the dust that he's breathed into bears his image and comes alive. And we bear God's image. But what is idolatry? Idolatry is man turns around and makes an image, but he can't blow life into it. And he recreates God after his fallen image and imagination. And God says, don't do me the favor. So us bearing God's image, all good. God says, I'm not bearing your image, you're bearing mine. Every form of idolatry diminishes God's glory because comparing God to anything in His creation misses the mark from the start. You just can't get there. So as we're talking about the lesson this morning, I'm going to be talking specifically about idolatry, but as I do so, we're covering both of those first two words. No other God, and specifically for these guys, because this was especially the culture they lived in, no other God through the form of idolatry. Guys, there's a variety of types of idols. We'll work through this in three different sections. And the first is things we make as idols. So this would have been traditional idolatry. This would have been the idolatry of the Egyptians You know that they'd come out of. They had statues. If you went to the nation of India today, there's millions, tens of millions of idols throughout the nation. Each one of those representing a god. That's the traditional form of idolatry we think of and that was rampant throughout biblical history. So, we're going to start with Isaiah 44 because I think it's one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture where God gives you His version of what idolatry is. So, if you want to turn there, this is verses uh, 12-17 through in chapter 44. In fact, you can close your eyes if you want to. You've got to see it because once you've seen it, it's indelible. You'll remember it, kind of like that image. Of Colonel Sturm. So this is God's satire. We're meant, this is sarcasm. It's irony. So through Isaiah, God says, the ironsmith, we might say the blacksmith, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool. Now this tool is something a carpenter's going to use. So maybe it's a chisel. He takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. And his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter, he's taking the tools the ironsmith has made. He stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. This is on a chunk of wood. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. All metal images that the ironsmith has made. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He cuts that tree down. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Remember, he's weak. He's got to eat. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So, here's the irony, right? Mortals who are weak. Miss a meal? I'm weak. 
Miss my drink of water? I've sweated. I'm, I'm out of it. Mortals who are weak make gods in their own weak image out of blocks of wood they might otherwise burn in a fire. They then bow to them and say, do something for me, save me. That same chunk of wood, I could have burned it, roasted my meat on it, and I say, oh, isn't this nice? But I might also bow down to it as if it could do anything for harm or for good. It's meant to be absurd, and it's meant to poke a hole through anybody's idea of idolatry. But guys, in the ancient world, that form of idolatry was the norm. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis had some great quote about, um, or maybe it was Chesterton, a tradition is the honor we give to former generations. You know, we're born in time, and we tend to have our view of things. We read our view of things back into history, and when we do that, we really miss the point. Uh, we think we're above idolatry. We're not, as you'll see in a moment. But if you'd gone anywhere in the ancient world when this text was written, and long, long afterwards, in many places even today, you'd have seen shrines everywhere. There was no city, there was no town, there was no dwelling where there was a group of people that wouldn't have had either on the top of a hill or in a grove of trees, sometimes in a valley near water, would have had an idol, would have had some form of altar to worship their gods. Everyone did. You remember when the New Testament church comes along, apart from other challenges, the Romans called them atheists. Now the Romans knew they worshipped a god. The problem for the Romans was you didn't worship many gods. And so because they weren't like everyone else worshiping many, many gods, they said, well, it's as if you have no god at all. So this was absolutely the norm. It wasn't just the temptation for Israel. This was the norm around the world of their day. So God mocks idolatry in Isaiah 44 because he says on one hand, the idols we make, it's just a block of something. So it's wood, it's metal, it's stone, it's just stuff. It's just stuff from the earth, it's nothing. There's another side of this we won't spend much time in today, but I do want to point it out. This is from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. If you read uh, 1 Corinthians, it's written to people for whom idolatry is the norm. And so they come to faith in Christ and they're, they're trying to figure things out. And so on one hand in chapter 8, Paul says, hey, meat that was sacrificed to an idol, and then it's taken out into the marketplace and it's sold for meat, you buy that and you don't worry about where it came from because it's just meat. And everything on the earth is God's anyway, so don't worry about it. But when he gets to chapter 10, he says, you must not worship in the idle places where that meat is being sacrificed. Because there, he says, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So on one hand, in chapter 8, he says, for us, there's no God but one God. We're created through Him, for Him. We go to Him. But you get to chapter 10, he says, oh, by the way, there's, there's demonic agency and energy behind idol worship. So it's not that the block of wood is anything more than the block of wood, but it's that demons are part of eliciting worship for idols detracting from the knowledge and the worship of God. So on one hand, just stuff, but on the other hand, there's demonic energy behind idol worship. So in the first two words to Israel, God's forbidding any such similar worship. Israel's neighbors, think of this, think of where they came from, and think of their neighbors. 
So God says no idolatry. So when they've left Egypt, Egypt was covered with idols. You remember the, the ten miracles that God performs as part of the Exodus account? That was showing that God was more powerful than the, the gods of Egypt. Each one represented a god of Egypt. And now they're coming into a new neighborhood in the land of promise. But what do the neighbors that are going to surround them do? They're all idol worshippers tool. So you've got Baal or Baal, and you've got his consort Ashtoreth, the Asherah poles. They worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. They worship Molech or Milcom or Molech, the statue that gets hot, and they'd put their little infants on it and offer them up. So the place they're coming from was filled with idolatry. The neighborhood they're moving to is filled with idolatry. God says, don't do it. You've got to be unique. You're mine. You worship me alone, nothing and no one else. Now, I want to point out a couple things before we get into another form of idolatry. The manufacture of stuff as an idol, it still goes on today. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, most of you know, and Roman Catholic t theology teaches that at the Eucharist, when the wafer and the wine are prayed over by the priest, they quit being merely wafer and wine, they become Jesus. They become the body and blood of Jesus. So that host up near the altar, that's Jesus. It's not a, it's not a representation of Jesus, it is Jesus. So if you're a Roman Catholic and you come into the Mass or the church, even if it's empty, you walk up front, you genuflect to the altar, or depending on what's going on, there's, a, there's an instrument, it's called a monstrance, not monstrous, but monstrance, and it's a, got a pedestal about this big, it's probably about this tall, it's kind of like a sunburst, and in the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, right in the middle, that's where the host is placed. And so when that monstrance is left out for public adoration, you're worshiping Jesus by worshiping the host. Well, the reformers called that idolatry because that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what God said don't do. And that's not what Jesus said was true about the Lord's Supper. If you're from part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, you pray to and you venerate what they call icons. And this might be a painting, it might be a statue, it might be Joseph and Mary, it might be God, it might be one of the saints. But you do the same thing. You pray to God through the icons. Now, Roman Catholics and Orthodox will all tell you this isn't idolatry, but by definition, that's exactly what it is. Modern day idolatry, we are not above this. And if you read the epistles, by the way, in the early church, uh, the early church had a problem with this throughout. In fact, you read John's epistles, I think it's 2 John, I think it's 2 John, that, that closes with children flee idolatry. Because it's still going on, they're still tempted by it. So, for us, you look back and you say they made statues out of wood, we get it, we're not going there. And so you say, well, we, we're not idolaters and we're safe from idolatry. And God says, well, slow down, not so fast. Colossians 3, verse 5. Now, this text in Colossians 3, Paul's talking to Christians who've come out of idolatry. And he says, hey guys, there's, there's things that were part of our former life. We're putting them off. We're putting them away. And we've got a new focus and we're doing new things. And it's in that context that he says this. This is Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, 
passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul goes through this list. He says these unholy desires are effectively idolatry. They had the effect of displacing God, and specifically sex in various forms becomes a God substitute. Almost all of those words probably have a sexual inference. And people forget, if, if you said, uh, I'm not a religious person back in the day, I'm not a religious person, and I don't pray to blocks of wood, you would probably still have been an idol worshiper for this reason. That's where sexual immorality was taking place. So cult prostitutes, no matter almost where you went to worship, if it was an idol worship center, sexual immorality was part and parcel of the part and parcel of idol worship. So Paul brings that into here and he says, hey guys, that sexual immorality, that impure relationship, the passion, uh, that's the strong desire, then he says an evil desire, that's idolatry. So you don't have to have a statue or a picture to be an idolater. The evil craving I have is idolatry. It displaces God and replaces Him with something else. Think of this. Uh, pornography as really just a rampant sin, not just in the culture, but in the church. You know, if we said in 1 Corinthians 10 that there's demonic energy behind idolatry... If pornography, and by definition from Colossians 3, 5, it is idolatry. Pornography is idolatry. Is it any wonder that it has the pull it does, there is demonic energy and agency behind it, as well as just if you're aware the way it rewires your brain, the pleasure centers, and all this other stuff, there is power behind that, and there's demonic power and agency behind that as well. So that's another form of idolatry. And guys, with that definition, the church is rife today with idolatry. The church that we call home, the church, the body of Christ that Jesus is jealous over is as immoral in idolatry as Israel could ever have thought about being if any of the surveys on pornography alone are true. So it affects us today. This isn't just something from years ago. It's affecting us today. Last along this line, John Calvin of the Reformation said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory to the degree that anything can be that thing that displaces God from his preeminence in our life, either as an object of worship or the, the one from whom we're taking our cues that we're free to worship him and take his lead. In our fallenness, we're willing to make almost anything or anyone an idol. Some of us will say something like this, or think it if not say it. If only I could marry that person, life would be great. If only we could have children, my life would be fulfilled. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those, right? Marriage is good. I'm for it. Kids are good. We're for kids. We have lots of kids. But it's the unholy desire for those things in a way that's displacing God from His preeminence. Nothing and no one can do for you what God alone can do. So if you have God and you worship Him, what you find is you're able to enjoy any of the good things He gives you because they're the good things He gives you. 
But if you don't have God at the center of your life, what you'll find is, guys, it can't be any other way. You'll turn things and people into God's substitutes because we're wired for this. Absolutely, you can't get away from it no matter what. For many of us, money and the things money buys is our God, is our God's substitute, our idol. So we're a world of materialism for sure these days, right? We have people that say, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, but man, do I love my stuff. The stuff is the idol. It's the God's substitute. A food, alcohol, and drugs, again, everything God created is good. Am I saying things are bad? No, not at all. It's the abuse of things. So I can abuse food. I can abuse drink. I can abuse drugs, legal drugs, illegal drugs. What am I doing? I'm pacifying myself. I've got issues in life where I, f- I just feel lonely. I see my own brokenness. I-, I feel the void or the emptiness in my life. And instead of getting filled up from God, I look for a God substitute in other things. It could be any of these things. It's not because inherently they're wrong. It's because I make them something they were never meant to fulfill. I'm giving them a role God never meant for them. This is the truth. Every idol is a lie. Every idol is a lie. And every act of idolatry is spiritual adultery. Every act of idolatry is spiritual adultery. I want to go back to verse 9 there for a second. God says, I am jealous for that which is mine. God is jealous for us and for our affections. Jesus is jealous for us and our affections. He uniquely means us to be His in a way that nothing and no one else is meant to share. Song of Songs has a great verse. uh, Song of Songs chapter 8, verse 6. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is severe as Sheol, as the grave. Jealousy is a positive here. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the flame of the Lord. Jealousy is the flame of the Lord. It's this consuming, purifying effect on the objects of His affection. So when we're thinking of whether pornography is my challenge or I'm making an idol of something else, we need to remind ourselves God is jealous for me. God wants to liberate me from loves that can never satisfy because he's got something better. Every demigod and God's substitute is a sham and a pathetic pretext. And guys, every idol will eventually break your heart. Every idol will eventually break your heart. I want to go back to the real life story of Colonel Bob Sturm. There's a reason that I brought him up on the beginning of this. His burst of joy was short-lived. That photo that's famous, that he's famous for. He'd received a letter from his wife. Now this is on the day of his release from the prisoner of war camp, I kid you not. The chaplain gave him a letter from his wife requesting a divorce. It's from the LA Times, July 4th, 1993. He said he survived the torture, the mock executions, the dread-filled days and nights so he could return to her, to his wife, only to be handed a Dear John letter by a chaplain upon his release. I want to be a little careful. I don't mean to pile on this woman, okay? But I think it's an apt, it's an apt illustration of what, what this is like. So the day that picture is taken, and you see Bob Sturm's back, 
and you see his daughter reaching out, he knows he doesn't have a family to go back to. He knows his wife is going to divorce him already. The picture doesn't show his face, it shows his daughter's face. This is what he said to the reporter from that interview. He said, in some ways it's hypocritical because my former wife had abandoned the marriage within a year or so after I was shot down. She did not even have the honor and integrity to be honest with the kids. She lived a lie. This picture does not show the realities that she had accepted proposals of marriage from three different men while he's in prison. It portrays that everyone there was happy to see me. Colonel Sturm's unique place as beloved husband and father was replaced by other men, by idols of his wife's heart that brought death to his marriage and destruction to his life and family. They were divorced. The kids were parceled out. That's what happened. Because remember, in a marriage, there's a covenant relationship, right? You're mine and I'm yours uniquely. And no one else can take that other person's spot unless I say idols are okay. And I'll, I'll entertain this idol, and I'll entertain that idol, and that's where it goes. What idols of the heart did to the Sturm family, they do to our life and relationship with the Lord. There are elements of death and destruction no matter what else is going on. Idols of the heart, that's all they can do. They can, they, there may be a moment of pleasure, right? There's a trade-off there. There's a moment of pleasure. Hebrews talks about that. But the, the end, the element that that brings in is always elements of death and destruction, just like his family. God has something better for us for sure. It's said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And the fact that human beings will worship almost anything as God or as a God substitute is a pretty clear reminder that we were created, we're not our own, we're not autonomous, and we were always made to worship. Idolatry is a nod that the fact that we were created and we were created to be worshipers. Idolatry is the wrong worship, but it's the reminder humans are made to worship. We're made to worship our Creator. The first two words, the first two commandments, treat idolatry as a negative to be avoided. Do not have other gods. Do not make idols. And guys, oftentimes... Um, the culture or the world around you will, will look at the negative statements in Scripture, the do nots, you know, like the Ten Commandments, do not do these things, as sort of a, an element of life in which everything's negative. God doesn't want you to have fun. All God says is, don't do this, don't take that, don't do this. But what you find, negatives could be stated in a positive way also, couldn't they? So if God's telling us avoid some things, there might be a good reason for it. And there might be a positive side to the negative command, right? And He does do this. He says, these two commands, He says in a positive statement, one chapter over, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the positive side of those negative statements. Deuteronomy 6.5, we'll look at this passage a little later too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your might. Stated positively, the command to love God is grace and mercy because it's only in knowing God and loving God that we can ever experience the kind of life and love and peace and significance and security God means for us. And guys, in all of idolatry, those are the things people are looking for. 
Those are the things, significance, value, meaning, purpose, ultimately, apart from immediate thrills. The commands to forsake idolatry in every form and cling to God in love is the very best thing any of us can do at any time. And it's why those first two words have such value for us today. In refusing idolatry of every stripe, in clinging to God in love, we are blessing ourselves as well as worshiping the God who deserves worship. God's commands against idolatry represent His mercy in protecting us from that which cannot save, cannot ultimately save, cannot ultimately bless in the way we're looking to be blessed. Idols are figments of our imagination that can't save us and can't help us on one hand. They are demonic distractions meant to keep us away from God and God's life and blessing on the other. If we give our love and affection to God through Christ our Savior, by the Holy Spirit, what we'll find is our hearts are far less fertile ground for idols because they are already filled up with God and His goodness. The God who delivered Israel from the power of Egypt and Egypt's gods would continue to be their protector and defense just as God is yours and mine today. God is our protector. He's our defender as we go into our lives just as they went into the land of promise. God who spoke out of fire and thunder at Sinai continued to speak through Moses so that Israel could experience abundance of life. You remember that was the whole thing. Hey, guys, if you'll do this, you'll get a blessed long life. I think you'll find today that to the degree our lives are conformed to God's Word, we experience love and joy and peace that nothing else can provide. And that's an easy segue for Mike to say something like this, are we meeting God in His Word? Are we meeting God in His Word? That's where we'll find Him. God may speak to us otherwise. He can. He's not limited. But God promises that He'll speak to us through the Scriptures. Are we meeting God in His Word? The God above every so-called God had chosen Israel for Himself. That gave them significance. And we'll look at that in a future message as well. And think of that for us. Scripture talks about saints in the New Testament as God's chosen ones. Christ's elect ones. Anything you, look, you and I look to, any kind of status, possession, role in life that you and I look to for significance is a step down, not up from the status we already enjoy as sons and daughters of the living God. You can't get any higher status than we already have. So any attempt to sort of fashion a life for ourselves on this earth to gain significance, guys, it's not a step up, it's a step down. Can't be otherwise. The God of Moses and Sinai made Himself fully known 1,500 years later than the text we're reading this morning in the Incarnation. You can imagine for the Jews, it was a big deal, right? If a guy that eats, he gets hungry, like, like the blacksmith, he gets hungry, and he gets thirsty, and he tells you he's Yahweh on earth. That's, that's a pretty wild claim, isn't it? That would take some getting used to, wouldn't it? You'd need some pretty strong evidence to say this carpenter from Nazareth, which is kind of the armpit of Israel, that he's God in flesh, that he's Yahweh of Mount Sinai? Like that, that'd be a tough sell, wouldn't it? Which is fine. That's a good... But he did what God said Messiah would do. And, and of course, he rose from the dead, which Messiah would do. And he accepted the worship 
of those that he had led, which, which God does, accepts our worship, doesn't he? You know, at the end of the day, anything, for us today, anything apart from embracing life through Christ is idolatry. A life, it can't be otherwise, guys. It just, it can't be because we're made to worship. So if we haven't trusted Christ, if Christ isn't the center of our life, we're, we're idolaters by definition. We want to give our lives to Christ. We want to accept the love and mercy and grace God promises in Jesus. Sins forgiven. Sons and daughters of the living God. We've got mercy and grace forever. That's a good day. That's a trade worth making. And it's the only way to live life for sure. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, of course, if you read the Gospels, especially the Synoptics, what does Jesus affirm and reaffirm as the greatest command of all? That you shall love the Lord your God with all that you are. It's the same thing. When God in flesh walks on the earth, he says the same thing God at Sinai said, love the Lord your God. It's the first thing you can do. It's the best thing you can do. If our hearts are not taken up with God and his perfections, friends, they will find they will find lesser gods. We can be our own God, by the way, can't we? So I want you to worship me. So I put on my best and I make myself as pleasing as I think I can be before you because I'm hoping you'll affirm me. I'm God. Help me feel affirmed. That's a form of idolatry too. God saves us from all of this little life and little living. I'll close with this thought. I think it is so important. We must be very careful regarding the object of our worship because we tend to become what we worship. This is something people don't realize. Uh, that you don't realize going in that whatever you're aspiring to, whatever is the focus of your attention, you'll become like it in one way or another. And you can't help it we are image bearers, and if we keep looking at the same thing, we will bear the image of the thing we're viewing, worshiping. If we worship the living and true God, we become more like Him over time. We call this holiness or sanctification. So when you read Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're reading what Christ's life in us looks like. And guys, you know, it's a humbling thing, isn't it, to hold those up and say, is that me? Love, you know, I've been anything but loving through most of my life. My wife, if she was honest, would say, you know, you see all the ways you fail. But if you don't see some transformation along the line in your life so that you realize, I do see more of Christ's love in me or peace or joy, then you've got to ask yourself, what have you been worshiping? Because maybe you're worshiping at another altar. Because to view Christ, to behold God through Christ, is to become more like Him over time. Listen to this from Psalm 115. The psalmist is speaking of the Gentiles' idols. And of course, in this sense, they are statues. He says, They're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes but don't see, ears they don't hear, noses they don't smell, hands they don't feel, feet they don't walk, they don't make a sound in their throat, uh, air, breath was the essence of life in anything. And he says, you know, when God breathed into that clay, that dirt, Adam came to life, well he says they're idols, they've, they've got nothing to give, they don't even have breath as if they can't even do that out of their throat. 
He says this, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Psalm 135 says the same thing. And G.K. Beale says this in his book, We Become What We Worship. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. So the object of your affection, the object of your worship, it's determining who and what you're becoming. And that can ruin you if it's an idol. Or it can restore you if it's God in Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, unlike Moses, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, and as we do so, we are being transformed into the same image, into God's image. From one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If we're beholding and worshiping God through Christ by the Spirit, we're going to become like Him. And that's why we say we should see the evidence of transformation going on in our life that's a determination by what we are viewing or worshiping. If we look at our life and conclude we're not becoming more Christ-like, again, we're probably worshiping at another altar. Are there idols of the heart that we cling to instead of Christ? They will break your heart and they will bring elements of death and destruction because it's all they've got to give. We need to be careful of that. Well, with that, if you would stand and the worship team will come up, I'd like to close by reading Jeremiah 10. It's one of my favorite passages, not only in Jeremiah, but it's a great passage about God versus the idols more broadly. Let's read that together. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For all of... I can read it, but it won't be as good without you. There is none like you, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Amen.